if you want to be a support figure, just letting that person know. Like, it seems like you're going through something. I'm here. If you need me, I'm here. You tell me what I can do to be helpful can be huge. Even just admitting, I don't know how to help you, but I want to. So let me know. I'm here for you. Hey, what's up? This is Corey Dion Lewis, clinical health coach and host of the Healthy Project podcast. Now, the research shows that social determinants can have a greater impact on your health more than healthcare or lifestyle choices. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss how to improve health and reduce health inequity by speaking to healthcare professionals, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast, give it a review. Or you can also make a donation to The Healthy Project using the link in the description. It takes 30 seconds and it's super easy. Hey, thank you so much for listening. Now let's get started. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Healthy Project Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Dion Lewis. We have a great guest with us today. Uh, we have board certified psychiatrists specializing in evidence-based lifestyle interventions for the management of mental distress. We have Dr. Allison Young here with us today. Um, Dr. Young, thank you so much for being with me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Awesome. So, you know, before we get into the conversation, how about you tell the people a little bit about yourself and what gets you up in the morning? All right. So I am a board certified psychiatrist. I practice. Um, I, so I see people with a wide variety of different forms of mental distress. Um, and I am really into lifestyle medicine. So my practice is definitely informed by those principles. In addition to that, I also work a little bit in media. So I'm a medical reviewer over at Everyday Health. But I also help them come up with and refine content as well as do some writing for them. So that's actually been a really rewarding thing. Surprisingly, I wasn't I wasn't really expecting um, but to do that form of the communication where you're helping. That's what the public sees, right? They don't see what's in the you know New England Journal of Medicine necessarily. They see the media's version of what's in the New England Journal of Medicine. So to be part of making sure that the translation of that is accurate has actually been really fun and really rewarding. And then besides that, um, I also do some teaching. So I teach residents lifestyle medicine and how it applies to mental health and do a little bit of um, more scientific publication, mostly in the form of reviews currently. So you stay busy. (laughs) It sounds like you do a whole lot. I wear a lot of different hats. In medical school, it's actually something I liked about psychiatry. I saw these people that they got to do a couple different things. They were working in the emergency room, but also had an outpatient practice. They had a practice, but they were also writing. And I thought, this is cool. We get to really have a full career. And um, I feel blessed that I've been able to kind of create the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, one of one of the the common things that we've been noticing a lot lately uh, has been a rise in in anxiety and it's, it's been there. um, But as of recently, you've been hearing a whole lot more about anxiety. What are your thoughts on, on anxiety and and how um, you've seen it within your practice? So anxiety is definitely, it's the most prevalent 
form of mental distress. It affects about 20% of people, and that's, you know, clinical anxiety. And now when you talk about subclinical, it's even more prevalent. Um, So it's definitely something that touches everyone. And of course, these last couple of years, there have been a lot of unsettling things happening. It's been even more um, of an issue. Um, I think it's really important to differentiate between the two because when you have clinical anxiety, not only is that defined by a specific um, constellation of symptoms, but it's also defined by an amount of time. So it's that kind of pervasive worry that impacts your functioning for six months or more. So um, I like to say that because anxiety is an issue regardless of whether it's clinical or subclinical. Um, but you see a lot of people in the wellness world, particularly, unfortunately, saying, oh, this is how I manage my anxiety. And it's really important to know if we're talking about subclinical anxiety or clinical anxiety. Both should be addressed. But it's a little bit different to tell someone how they should be dealing with their anxiety if it's not clinical. So I think it's something that needs to be, all of it needs to be talked about, but we need to make sure we differentiate when we're talking about everyday anxiety that definitely affects our ability to handle stressors and and be our best versus versus clinical anxiety, which is really inhibiting the way that you are interacting with people and functioning. You make a good point. You know, not everything has to go into that anxiety bucket because there are a lot of people that really, really deal with anxiety that can't function. But that's a big difference from that person who misses that one day from their morning routine and now their day is off. There is a huge, huge difference there. Yeah, and I and that's not to say I don't think having a good routine can't help someone on the clinical side as well. That's absolutely one of the interventions we do. Um, it's a little bit hard because in psychiatry is so subjective. Part of what helps define it is that difficulty managing it, and it's hard to know if that difficulty managing it is always something that's innate to that disease. You know, we are. We don't know biologically what causes all of these things, or is it a coping style? And for some people, getting different coping skills really is a large difference and a large part of it. But because part of that definition is kind of an inability to manage it on your own, it's kind of hard to separate out. Um, it's a little bit subjective at the currently. Right, right. Um, do you feel like people are a lot more open to speaking about their anxiety and the things that they're currently going through than we used to before in the past? I do definitely think I see a change in the culture. I think I do see people more willing to admit when they're having a hard moment. Um, And I also hear people talk about therapy a lot more openly than I ever have in the past. Um, And so I do think that we are going towards the way and, I think there's a huge amount that even just happens when we let ourselves recognize what we're experiencing. So I think that there could almost be a like a collective form of feeling that happens when we're able to sort of understand how messy the human condition is and accept all of those feelings that come into being a human. Yeah, it takes there's a lot being a human these days. <laughs> <laughs> so anxiety versus depression. 
what are the differences? Obviously, there are differences, but what are they? You know, are there are these small differences, uh, big differences? How would you um, explain that to, that difference to someone? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that comes up a lot. So like the most simple explanation I was told in training was um, anxiety is often worry about the future, whereas depression is rumination about the past. Now, that's totally oversimplified, but it's an interesting little way to start conceptualizing. Um, so anxiety is often in the form of worry. And people like to use the term high-functioning anxiety, and that's often the person that's such a planner. So it's this need to have control over or a sense of control over everything. And so they might say, well, I'm not anxious, but it's really because they're spending up all their time thinking, thinking, thinking about their next move, what it's going to look like, how am I going to do it, and planning, planning, planning. Um Whereas depression is a little bit, is more ruminative. Um, a lot of times there's feelings of guilt and blame about things. There's a low mood that goes with it. But what we know is if somebody has untreated anxiety for a long time, it can give way to depression. And so I, I can almost kind of think of it like you've kind of just exhausted yourself and now you've gone through this chronic anxiety and now you've hit the point of depression. And unfortunately, that's when we see people um, clinically. They didn't come during that phase of anxiety. They came at that phase where it's in the wall. But when you take their history, what's been the prevailing thing has actually been anxiety. So you're right. It is sometimes hard to figure out and tease out. And sometimes to treat someone's depression, you have to go back and help them cope with that anxiety no that's good so from a lifestyle medicine perspective um are there differences that you use in dealing with um or working with someone with depression or anxiety definitely so i like to first take a full history for someone to see what areas that, that they may not be living a fully healthy life or what areas that they perceive themselves, which is not always the same. Um, so it's important to kind of be on the same page. So research wise, there's definitely more research for lifestyle interventions in depression, but there are some anxiety as well. And I would say mindfulness is one of them as well as exercise interventions. Now, like you said, anxiety it comes in many different forms. So I'm just going to be talking about generalized anxiety, but of course you can have panic disorder, you can have social anxiety, you can have a lot of, you have different forms of anxiety, but we can just talk about kind of a generalized anxiety. So um, for a lot of people, I think having some kind of um, mindfulness that will look different for everyone. Um, so whether that's a formal meditation practice, whether that's going through something guided, um, whether that's yoga, um, which kind of combines yoga mindfulness and movement, that can be really helpful for people. And then the other thing is just uh, exercise in general. Any kind of physical activity that appeals to that person um, can certainly be helpful. So those are the two I probably use the most. And then the third, of course, is sleep. Um, I take that one for granted because we always talk about sleeping psychiatry, but um, sleep is definitely linked to anxiety. So. None of the other things are going to help if the person's not sleeping well. So 
getting a good nighttime routine, good sleep behaviors, and figuring out the sleep piece is a fun- fundamental to treating that as well. Yes, man, that sleep piece is big. And me knowing that sleep is so important, I'm still that guy that will binge Netflix knowing I should go. I should go to sleep. And I'm guilty too. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Sometimes I find myself with my phone and I'm like, this is exactly what I tell everyone not to do. Yeah, here I am. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not great, but I'm working on it. Um, So, yes. So for someone who maybe doesn't have your background, but they have someone in their life that's dealing with anxiety or depression and they just... They just want to help. What are some tips or some some great ideas for someone who wants to help a loved one or a friend get through um, a rough or harsh time in their life? Yeah, I love that question. Um, I think, one, if you want to be a support figure, just letting that person know. Like, right. It seems like you're going through something. I'm here. If you need me, I'm here. You tell me what I can do to be helpful can be huge. Even just admitting, I don't know how to help you, but I want to. So let me know. I'm here for you. And then just checking in on them. If they're not wanting to talk to you about it, even just checking in, hey, you good? Um, doing, Trying to make plans with that person, um, I think can all be helpful. I think if you're you know, so worried about the person, obviously you go into the next step of really trying to figure out, you know, I think you you should see someone and, you know, reaching out to maybe other people in their life to try and support them in that. But if it's someone having a tough time um, who may either be care ready or isn't quite ready for that, just letting them know you're there can be huge. Right, right. Just being present, just being present for them. So being that person um, for someone else like you are with your work, what is it that you do? for your mental health. Yeah, that's been a huge thing in COVID, right? Because there's been a lot of people in the health world um, dealing with a lot of stress. And so for me, definitely the same things that I preach, I have to practice. So I know if I don't exercise, I see a difference in the way I'm able to handle day-to-day stresses. If I don't take a couple minutes to be mindful, if I'm not mindful of what I'm eating, all of those things for me definitely help me have kind of the energy and the capacity to handle day-to-day stresses. So, um, and then the other thing is I always like to say to do something I do for myself, but also I like to tell people is do something just for fun. Make sure every once in a while you're doing something just for fun. Um, so for me recently, I've been up paddle boarding and it's just time for me, something that I'm doing that's just fun. There's no end goal. I just enjoy the process. It's just fun. Um, and I think there can be so much power in just doing something just because it's fun. Man, you can't beat just having a little bit of fun. Um, that's awesome. Well, you know, I do see, you know, that you are also a speaker at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine's uh, conference, uh, Redesigning Healthcare Better. What can people expect from you um, at this conference this year? Yeah, so I will be presenting um, in November at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine's annual conference on psychotropic induced weight gain 
and kind of the evidence for how it's managed and the um, role lifestyle medicine could help play. So we know now that a lot of medications cause weight gain that we use in psychiatry and not just weight gain, but also changes in um, cholesterol, lipid profile, and also um, predispose someone to diabetes. For a while, the main players were antipsychotics, the, what we call the second generation antipsychotics, things like Seroquel, Abilify. Um, one issue is those are not only prescribed to people with a psychotic disorder. So now the research shows that like almost one in five people with depression are also prescribed one of these medicines. So they're much more widely used now. And it's very well accepted and well known that they cause these um, metabolic side effects. But now we even know that depression medicines, um, like SSRIs, common ones, you know, um, Prozac, Lexapro, Selexa, those also, when taken over time, cause weight gain and can cause changes in people's lipid profiles. Um, and that's more when taken in the long term. And so I think it's really important as um, mental health professionals, but even in primary care, because a lot of the prescribing of psychiatric medicines happens in primary care, that we help people prevent those side effects, um, especially because just having a mental a diagnosis of mental illness already increases your risk of having those. So now we're increasing your risk even more. And so um, unfortunately for a while, the answer's been, oh, if I'm prescribing an antipsychotic, I'm going to give metformin sort of preventatively. Um, which is a medicine for diabetes and also um, can help with weight gain. Um, but then you're kind of increasing their pill burden, you're increasing their side effect burden to medications, um, and things really haven't been fully explored yet um, in this population that has been explored in the non-psychiatric population. So we know now nutrition really changes your risk for developing type 2 diabetes. It's a foundation for helping to prevent but also manage diabetes. But we really haven't translated that fully to a psychiatric population. And so I think that there's a lot of um, room to really improve the life um, to decrease the morbidity as well as the mortality of those people with uh, mental illnesses if we harness the power of these lifestyle um, interventions that are already happening outside of this population, um, but not so much within this population. Yeah, no, I mean, and I see this a little bit in my office as well, where I will have someone that's on a few medications for their mental health and some of those side effects are, you know, weight gain and they, they want to lose weight, but they don't feel right when they're off the medications, but the medication that they're on are really hurting their kind of their, their weight loss goals. And, and we get there, you know what I mean? It may take a little bit more time and a little bit more consistency, but um, you can also see how it can be frustrating for someone who wants to uh, meet their health and wellness goals, but also their, their mentals. And yeah. And I think it's, whole really interesting area of psychiatry because what I'm seeing more too is there's sometimes, um, not all, so waking is not always dose dependent, but it can be dose dependent on, on how much in the medicine. And a lot of the research we have is in that acute phase of illness um, and not in chronic maintenance. And so a lot of people wind up on this higher dose that was needed to treat 
their acute phase, um, but maybe they don't need as much for the chronic phase. And there was a, a paper that came out recently that I actually uh, wrote a piece for Everyday Day Health um, on it because it was kind of saying that less is more um, when you're trying to maintain someone um, who you've already treated their acute schizophrenia and now you're preventing relapse. Um, and it suggested that less medicine could be used. Not no medicine, but definitely less medicine um, could be used for that. And so I think we're getting to this phase where we um, got really excited about medication for the acute phase of illness, but now we're seeing that it's a little trickier for chronic. How effective is it? At what dose is it effective? Long-term, what what consequences are there? And I see that when you use lifestyle interventions, you're at least able to reduce the pill load, whether you're reducing the psychiatric pill load that can happen or reducing the pill load from other medications that the person now needs. And when you do that for someone, you just are really improving their quality of life. So I think we're in an interesting part of the field where we're saying, okay, we have these tools for acute phase. Now let's talk about chronic phase. How can we help this person lived a really fulfilled, high-quality life without all these side effects, without all this burden of medication. And I think it's an exciting part of the field to you know, be trying to help shape um, and to be a part of right now. Awesome. Well, Allison, thank you so much for being on the Healthy Project podcast with me today. I really appreciated it. Um, anybody that's listening that wants to get to know you or learn more about you and what you're doing, uh, where can they find you? Yeah, so I do have a Twitter account. Um, it's at Allie Young MD. Allie's A L L I. Um, so at Allie Young MD. I'm not going to say I'm super active there, but I do post time to time. I do go on from time to time. Um, but then also I do um, the work for Everyday Health. So you can also, if you look up Allison Young on Everyday Health site, it will give you the list of things I've written for them as well. Awesome. Well, again, Allison, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. I really appreciate it. And everyone, thank you for listening. I'll holla at you next time.